This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to episode 288 of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me as he does every week is the world-renowned Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you doing? World-renowned. I'm doing well. World. How, how's everyone out there in the world? I don't hear anything, so I guess they're doing well. Shoot, yeah. Um, I don't think they can answer us. That That's too bad, really. Um, Is this anyway. like the World Wide <laughs> Web? You know, I was telling my kids the other day, because, you know, they're teenagers, and I said, you know, we always say, like, oh, a website or whatever, go to a site. I said, but I remember in the early days, people would say, like, oh, yeah, I went searching for this, and I found it on the World Wide Web. <laughs> <laughs> and you never hear anybody say that anymore. No, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, do you remember Information Superhighway? I remember that one. Yeah, we used to hear that a lot, yeah. (laughs) I never hear that. No, we're we're old. I mean, we just have to kind of face facts here. We're we're old. Uh, Speak for yourself. No, I'm older (laughs) than you. Uh, Okay. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, in this episode, we are continuing what I think I'm going to maybe call the month of Mac. Because this has all been David Mack novels this month, and specifically the Star Trek Destiny trilogy. So uh, we're going to be talking about book two of the Destiny trilogy in the feature, and that's Mere Mortals, of course, as I said, by David Mack. Now, we were originally going to have a guest joining us, uh, and that was going to be Justin Ozer. Unfortunately, uh, life events in the world kind of interfered, and we weren't able to make the schedules work. Uh, so it'll just be Bruce and I, but but please don't turn off the podcast. We, we're going to have a good discussion, I promise. Yeah, we want you to stick around and continue listening to Literary Max. That's the new <laughs> name of the show. I like it. That's uh, that's going to be four episodes in a row of David Mack books with collateral damage before the trilogy. So that's kind of cool. I hope he doesn't get a big head from this. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it helps with uh, writing more Star Trek novels, I'm whatever, whatever we can do. Yeah. I, I'm for it. That's fine. And the plan is to have him on for the next episode. So 
if all works out, he'll be here. Absolutely. Really looking forward to that. Although hopefully we didn't jinx it like we did with Justin. So, <laughs> well, then we'll have to change the name of the show to Literary Justin's. Oh, there we go. Yeah, that'll be. And then he and Justin gets all of December all to himself. <laughs> he just has to write four books in order to make that happen. There we go. <laughs> so it's not just NaNoWriMo, it's NaNo4RIMO? I don't know how that would work. <laughs> I don't know. It should be Literary Ozers. Literary Ozers. I like that. Okay. <laughs> well, if you can't tell from uh, just the kind of uh, stalling we're doing here, there's actually really no big uh, news stories in the book world to report on this week. Now, of course, as you know, this show comes out uh, quite a while after we record it. So knowing our luck, there'll be some big book announcement in the next couple days. And then when you hear this, it'll be really dated and <laughs> you'll be like, how could you not talk about that amazing new five book series being written by Dayton Ward? That's But no, we don't know about that yet because uh, there's there's no news this week, unfortunately. Darn, now you got me all excited. I really hope that announcement does come out. <laughs> I mean, I do too. I think, I'm sure Dayton Ward does as well, so that would be good. <laughs> yeah, and now you're starting rumors. People are going to pick up on that and say, did you hear there's a five-book series by Dayton Ward coming out? <laughs> um. Yeah, hey, I mean, maybe if we start the rumor, it'll actually happen. Don't, okay, let's not do that, everyone. <laughs> yeah no Let's definitely don't tweet no i'm just kidding don't oh my actually. gosh the more we talk about the more it's gonna happen <laughs> well okay let's uh let's move on then because uh like i said no big news but uh we do have of course our regular feedback feature uh, this is feedback in the babel conference our listeners group on facebook and this feedback is for Literary Treks 286, the wrong thing for the right reason. So even this part is David Mack centric because that was the episode that we covered collateral damage and David Mack guested on the show. So, oh my gosh, more Mack. Yeah. I mean, hey, I, I think it's great. I, it's overflowing with riches of David Mack. <laughs> it's a Mack attack. <laughs> I like it. It's a big Mack. <laughs> Well, I wonder if he's ever been called, if anybody ever called him a, a Big Mac before. Pro probably not to his face. And I, I don't know that I'd really want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, let's pop over to the Babel Conference well, and take a look at some of these comments. We need a jingle for the Babel Conference section, you know? Oh, uh, yeah. Hmm. Like, Babel Conference, Babel Conference. So Patrick Carlin says, here's hoping we get more of the Starfleet Intelligence Trio. I really enjoyed their parts of the book, especially the part when Naomi revealed something sneaky she did while still on Voyager. That moment utterly slayed me. And then six crying, laughing face emojis. And Patrick, I know the part you're talking about. And uh, I absolutely agree. And I got to say, Neelix was not keeping as close an eye on Naomi as he ought to have been because... That's pretty naughty. <laughs> yes, it is. And then we have uh, Casey Pettit, who is now associate producer here of Literary Treks. Casey says here on the Babel Conference, says, great interview. Always great to hear from David Mack. Although the thing that's really keeping me awake, Kurtrats. I, I just, why did I not notice this before? Whatever could you be talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and Liam Smith says, I know, right? 
Yes, Dan, what what are they talking about? I I I couldn't say. I have no idea. I don't think anything that we learn in the next few minutes will shed any light on this whatsoever. Uh, we won't give it away, but could you tell people, because some people might not know, what what is Kurt Tratz? That's your YouTube channel. Yeah, that's my uh, YouTube channel name, uh, my Twitter handle, and it's just Kurt Tratz, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And on yes. Instagram, I'm Kurt Tratz 47. So it's it's just kind of, I think I was playing like Counter-Strike as, as a younger person. Uh computer game and that was just the the handle i used all the time and uh mm. it just kind of stuck so if no one knows how you came up with that name they should just write that down like you spelled it and try to figure it out mm-hmm. although i think we might blow the cover in just a second here because liam smith says it's star trek backwards head explodes Boom. <laughs> yes yeah i was just uh yeah Took something I like and wrote it backwards. That's uh, my internet nom de plume, I guess. <laughs> anyway, Liam Smith continues, always wonderful to hear from David Mack, and especially hearing about his ongoing involvement in the Trek world. Collateral damage felt like goodbye in many ways, so I'm glad it may not be. And now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go hit on my spouse. Not sure what you meant by that last part, but thank you for the comment. I might be missing a joke there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> um i i yeah okay and then matt rushing says great interview i may be in the minority but i would rather have the books and the new picard series to be different universes i love picard his marriage to beverly and they're having a family and from what we have seen from the trailers for the show that would have to be gone in some way and i just don't want that well matt uh, okay. This is what I think. I think it's going to end up in some way as being two separate universes. I don't know how they're going to take this literary post nemesis continuity and fit that into Picard from what we've heard about this series. But you know, these guys are clever. The authors could come up with something, but uh, mm, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, David Mack did have that tweet that they have a plan that they're working on something, but uh, of course he couldn't tell us what that was on our, on the show. And yeah, I don't know. I, it's still up in the air at this point. I think Kimberly Lawler says wonderful interview. I love hearing how much the authors care about these characters and stories. It really comes through in the books. My favorite parts of collateral damage were Worf and seeing how he has matured as a leader and Picard's hearing. I really liked his lawyer, Jonathan Ezor. It was a small detail, but it was impressive that he was admitted to the Earth, Rigel, and Vulcan bars. I'm assuming that's a, a legal bar and not just uh, he was able to get in to some bars because he met the age requirement. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I thought they were talking about candy bars. <laughs> she goes on, I had no problem at all with the narrative tense and POV switching around, as I thought it was engaging and very well done. I just didn't love the particular characters. As you said, while we can empathize with what happened to the Nausicans and sort of understand their reasoning, they still killed a lot of people here. And while Okona is meant to be a rogue like Han Solo, he never really made it onto the likable side of the line for me. Except for a few moments, I was kind of appalled by him and Sam Lavelle, instead of finding their ineptitude amusing. Overall, I give this book four out of five planetary bar exams. Mm-hmm. There you go. That sounds good. And then Justin Ozer says, great interview. There was a lot I loved about the novel. Worf in command was incredible. The Nausicaan storyline was amazing. Picard's hearing was very gripping. 
and I enjoyed the changes from third to first person and back again. The problem that I had is that I didn't like Akana in TNG, and I don't like him in this novel. He's always rubbed me the wrong way. That said, I'd give the novel four out of five Jonathan Ezor's defending me at high stakes public hearing. All right. Yeah, I, I, a lot of people have been saying they don't really like Okana, and I'm, I have to say I'm not the biggest fan either, but uh, I like how he was used in this novel. Yeah, I was I was okay with it. It worked for me. Mm-hmm. Oztrecki says, love David Mack novels and listening to David Mack talk about David Mack novels. That's a lot of Mack. Interesting style of storytelling <laughs> that I hadn't seen before. I enjoyed it for a change of pace. Loved the conclusion to the arc started in the A Time 2 series. I love what all the authors have done with Worf post the TV series, and he has easily had the most growth of any character since the beginning of TNG. I mean, Star Trek's the story of Worf, right? This is what I always say. That is your philosophy. (laughs) He says, looking forward to seeing how the Treklet universe is merged with the new series in upcoming novels. You and me both. (laughs) Merged with it. Hmm. And see, yeah. Are they separate universes or will they be merged in a different way? They'll be merged Decker, Ilea, and V'ger style and create some new life. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either, but I guess that's all we have here in the Babel Conference. Maybe they'll be merged like Tuvix. <laughs> <laughs> the Tuvix verse. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, on that note, um, what do you say we pop over to the feature and talk about Star Trek Destiny, book two of three, Mere Mortals? Yes. And from here on out, there's going to be a drinking game. Anytime we say David Mack or just Mack, you have to take a drink. Hmm. This could be interesting by the end of the show. So here we are in book two. So... First of all, I want to address something that comes up a lot with trilogies, because we've talked a little bit about this before, and that's middle book syndrome. So sometimes the middle book can be kind of a little bit of a lull in between a strong start and a strong finish. I'm going to put it right to you right at the beginning. Do you think this book falls into that category? I think this book falls into the category of being very strong. I absolutely agree. I think uh, this one shatters that myth. So interesting. Cool. I just wanted to kind of start out with that and just uh, see how that plays out because I have a feeling this one breaks that rule. I feel like book one was really setting the stage. And Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden when uh, David Mack wrote book two, it just like really started to take off. Not that I'm not saying that book one was slow at all. By Mm -hmm. all means, it's just like all of a sudden, everything is just like starting to build and build and build and build. Even as we get further into the into book two, it just feels like it's really like on high speed. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, kind of filling in some stuff that that had big question marks in book one as well, which is I I think a feature we're going to see in this book and book three as well, those kind of filling in some big questions that, and that's the stuff that I really like. I like the kind of explorations of uh, these weird happenings and, and what's going on behind the scenes that we get in these books. Yeah. And I just don't know how he kept it all together in his head. I mean, I, I know we've talked to authors before and they just say they've got notes and things like all over the room or whatever, but there is just so much going on 
that I, when I got to the end of this book, I thought, I, I don't even know if we can cover it all. I know we said that last week, but I was just like, we're not, there's so much. I'm like, I could write notes all day and I just don't even know what to focus on. We're going to miss some things because there's just so, it's dense. It's just dense with all kinds of crews and action and things going on. Yeah, definitely. And I've actually got that written down as one of the things I want to ask David Mack next week. Oh, take a drink. Uh, (laughs) How he kept this all straight because this story has so many layers and it just builds upon itself and doubles back on itself and does some really amazing, cool things. So, well, let's, uh, let's dive right into the story then. So at the end of the last novel, we had kind of a few cliffhangers going on. We had, uh, the Titan at new Aragal having, uh, being, having sent an away team down in a shuttlecraft and they meet with the Kaliar and a young looking Erica Hernandez Meanwhile, we've got the Enterprise and the Aventine both in the Azure Nebula, uh, and the Enterprise is under attack by Borg vessels, and they've called the Aventine to come and help. So at the start of this novel, we pick up right there where it's left off, and the Aventine comes to the rescue of the Enterprise, uh, helping them as a targeting system for the transphasic torpedoes. This is a really cool sequence because the enterprise's targeting sensors were down, but they have the transphasic torpedoes, which are the only weapon that can work against the Borg. The Aventine does not have those weapons, but a functional targeting system. So they link up the computers and enterprise releases the torpedoes and Aventine uses her targeting computer to take control of the torpedoes and guide them to the Borg ships. This is a really cool little action sequence to kind of kick off the novel. It was, but the thing I liked most about this sequence was just the relationship of the two crews with each other and how they're working together. And I mean, we have this more seasoned captain in Picard, and now we have this new captain in Dax, And yet when they're working together, when she comes over to visit with him on his ship, he is the senior officer when the two of them are together because he is the captain of 30 years or whatever it's been at this point, 40 years. And she's new to this, but she could hold her own with him. I mean, there was never a sense that she felt intimidated by Picard and that he's showing her the ropes and she doesn't know what she's doing. I really loved how Dax just really shows that she is a captain and that she deserves to be in that place. And all those years of different lives of Dax that are incorporated into her psyche now, it really helps her to grow and become this what could be one of the best captains in the future because she's starting off right on target, just real great. Mm -hmm. I really like how she's able to go toe to toe with Picard. And, you know, this is a character, Picard, who could easily outshine Dax because of his experience and how revered he is and that kind of thing. But Mac has written Dax to just really rise to the occasion and take a drink, by the way, and really, um, you know, like I said, hold her own against him and, uh, really work together the two crews as a this well-oiled machine that you would expect like Starfleet crews to be able to do. You know, that's something we see a lot in the TV shows is kind of uh, another captain and, and crew, and they kind of tend to butt heads with our heroes a little bit. So it's really nice to see these crews working together like the professionals they would be. 
That's a good point, because how often do we see shows where there's Captain Picard and he's dealing with another captain and the captain isn't very competent or the captain's doing something wrong or the captain's evil. And of course, we know about the bad morals and all that. And we don't have that here. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's refreshing. And it's great to see the development of Dax in this as a captain. But then, you know, the whole tunnel sequence, you know, you're talking about fighting the Borg. But the great thing about Star Trek and the scene is there's three things it gets right. And that's characters and the relationships. And it's the science of the tunnels. And it's the fighting of the Borg. That's it's your action. So you got your action, your science and your characters. And mm-hmm. it just works really well. Definitely. Well, let's talk about these tunnels a little bit. So in the Azure Nebula, there's all these different subspace tunnels that all kind of uh, orig- or end there, but we'll find out they originated there. And they go to like different wildly divergent places all across the galaxy and the universe. Uh, you know, in, in one instance, they, they end up in a completely different galaxy through these tunnels. So they they burrow through subspace and they basically go to all these different places and they know that the Borg are using one of them to pour their forces into the Alpha Quadrant. So their plan is, well, we've got to colla- find that tunnel and collapse it somehow. And they figure, well, we should collapse all the tunnels, right? Picard's like, I'm a pragmatist. I want to explore and do all that good stuff, but the greater good right now is collapsing all of the tunnels right away, uh, regardless of trying to figure out which one the Borg are using and end this threat here and now. And they find out they can't do that. So what they end up having to do is kind of scout out each different tunnel and they can't collapse them all because they find out that like, if they do, it'll, you know, destroy this solar system over here and like these 10 planets over there like it would be disastrous it would cause all these knock-on effects that would uh really harm the alpha quadrant possibly in ways worse than the borg are and you have to think that starfleet of course is a exploratory science military type organization and so when you find these tunnels if you're an exploratory organization you want to keep these tunnels this allows you to travel the universe in places unknown that you've never been to to go where no one has gone before and now you have to face the fact that you might have to collapse the tunnels and and they have that issue of trying to figure out you know oh what a, what a shame it would be if we have to collapse these tunnels you know because this would be something really great the other thing though i wanted to th- bring up is going back to the Columbia because the first tunnel was discovered because of the Columbia being found in the gamma quadrant by Dax and the Avatine. And they wondered how did this ship get all the way to the gamma quadrant? And they discovered, you know, this tunnel as they're trying to figure this out. And I don't remember them ever contemplating the idea that, well, could the ship have come through the Bajoran wormhole a hundred, 200 years ago? I do remember there's there's like a throwaway line that there's some uh, stresses on the hull, subspace stresses, but they've been able to eliminate uh, transwarp speeds and wormhole effects or something like that. So, oh, you know, I do remember that now. Yeah. So that would yeah. rule out the Bajoran wormhole. Right. So, yeah, they didn't call it out by name, but I think they basically said it couldn't have come by wormhole kind of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. I do remember that now. But yeah, when I was reading this, I started thinking about that. I was like, wait, why did they rule out the Bajoran wormhole on this? Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, the tunnels would be great for Starfleet, you know? Oh, Just imagine the series of ships going through tunnels and visiting other places of the universe. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go ahead and give the spoiler warning early here. We're going to be discussing this novel kind of all the way through and talking about uh, things that happen uh, well past the middle and towards the end. So uh, if you haven't read this novel, be warned, there are spoilers going forward. So just uh, that's your warning here. So this part of the mission, like you said, these tunnels are an explorer's dream. And we get a bit of the Aventine and the Enterprise scouting through these tunnels while they're waiting for Starfleet to send forces there because they figure that's where they can bottleneck the Borg. That's where they're entering uh, Federation space. But I just want to talk a little bit about some of the stuff they discover. So the Enterprise goes through this one tunnel and ends up in a different galaxy And this galaxy is almost completely dark because all of the stars within range are surrounded by like Dyson shells and Dyson spheres. And some civilization seems to have harnessed all of the energy, all of the the power and energy in this galaxy. Uh, It's harnessed it all in service of their civilization. But at the same time, they scan those in range and there are no life forms. It's dead. So that scene was so ominous and just chilled me. I I loved that. And that one to me really highlighted like what a tragedy it is that Starfleet can't use these tunnels because I want to know more about that. I want to know what happened. And they figure this galaxy is like one of the oldest they've ever encountered. Like from the moments of the Big Bang, it was one of the first galaxies kind of thing. And it's just so cool. That is cool. You know, that reminds me of what I was hoping we would get more of in Voyager when it was premiering, because when they were like, oh, Voyager is going to be on a completely end of the universe, I thought, oh, they're going to run into really strange and weird things that we don't see in our side of the universe. And we didn't see that much of that. And that was the kind of thing I was hoping for from that series. Yeah. Oh, man, uh, that alien has two bumps on his head. Two. <laughs> right. <laughs> Boy, that alien's ears are even pointier. <laughs> it, it looks like it could have come out of a gold key comic. But, uh, <laughs> oh, but the thing about this universe you're talking about, or this galaxy of the Dyson spheres, well, you know, and we, yeah, I'm dropping spoilers here, but you know the Kaliar have this like Dyson sphere type situation that they're they're building, and when we get even more to that part of the book, I kept thinking, is there a relationship between them and that galaxy in some mm. way, or is this a galaxy that is maybe the that is a future galaxy of the Kaliar or something, or I I don't know, or <laughs> relatives of? Well, one of the things that I thought of was they um. They do mention earlier, like in in a different part of this book, one of the flashbacks, they do mention how uh, one of the cities that escaped the explosion of Aragal uh, went through a tunnel and ended up in a galaxy that was, you know, really close to the Big Bang. And it was uh, very early. So they, they'd been living for eons. 
And then they discovered that that was the civilization that sent the pulse that destroyed Aragal to ensure their own creation. Right. So this has got to be that. I mean, it could be. There, there's there's countless galaxies, but that's where my brain was going too. Is like, are these them? Did they meet a horrible end? What happened? Like, ooh. Yeah. See, this is the kind of book, and I'm really disappointed that we're doing a podcast on this because there's a time <laughs> factor. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But no, what I mean by that is I read the book, and I, of course I read these when they first came out years ago. But after I read it, I was like, I really feel like I need to sit down and read it one more time because mm-hmm. there's <laughs> so much. And I didn't have time to read it again before the show. That's why I'm saying, you know, too bad we're doing a podcast because if I wasn't doing a podcast, I'd probably just start over and start reading it again. And I may do that eventually. But yeah, I mean, it's those kind of things that you can really dissect and pull apart and go, well, what does this mean? And is this connected? And and what happened with that? And there's just a lot of that going on in this. And to the point that I'm really anxious to get to book three, and again, even though I've read these before, I don't remember all this detail. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if certain those things get answered or not. I don't remember. Yeah, and and that's one of the brilliant things about this is it blows that Star Trek universe wide open and makes you realize there are possibilities out there that you know can really be explored that just have never been looked at before. And I don't know. There's some big ideas here that I'm like, that could be a novel in and of itself, exploring that and what happened there. Like, ah, man, all the stories. I want all the Star Trek stories. I want them all. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So listen to this. This is what, this is what I keep thinking about when I'm reading this. And it goes back to what we were just talking about in the responses in the Babel conference about, well, how does this timeline fit in with the continuity of Star Trek Picard? And if I had it my way, if, if, if the gods of the universe or the writers of the world or whatever, if they could grant my wish, and Will Smith, if you can grant my wish, that'd be great too. <laughs> it would be great to do another book series like this and David Mack could do it with others or just himself or whatever. I want another destiny trilogy type thing that even maybe revisits some of these aspects. And like you said, the there's possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. And it creates the possibilities that somehow something gets skewed in the universe through these events that took place in the destiny trilogy and this other new trilogy or whatever, this big event that kind of resets the universe in a sense that ties it to what we're seeing now in star Trek Picard. Definitely. I mean, like Spock said that, right? There always are possibilities, right? That was, that was one of his things, right? There's always possibilities. And I always, I'm going to go on a little side tangent here. When, when people talk about like the Star Trek they like, and this is the Star Trek they like, they like these stories here. And, uh, you know, I'm, I want them to blow it wide open. I want 10 different Star Trek shows that all appeal to 10 different people because there's all these possibilities and they could just really explore them. And in this particular case, let the, what you're proposing, I would love to see that. I think that would be an amazing series of books. And, uh, would they sell really well? I don't know, but I sure want to read them. <laughs> well, and there's so many things that you can do because, you know, we're always thinking about where we are now and where we're going. So we're in this continuity and now there's this other continuity of Star Trek Picard that's coming. 
well, flip that around. Maybe the current continuity really starts at Star Trek Picard in that continuity, and something happens in that continuity that creates this one. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, and I'm also fine if they just go, ah, they're separate stories, separate continuities. They just are. Just like, you know, Star Wars did Legends. You know, David Mack mentioned about that before too when we had him on yeah i'm fine with that too but it would it, be cool it it would be cool it feels the most likely that that's what they'll do it's just gonna okay that continuity is done we're back on prime universe uh main canon continuity now but or maybe all this was this continuity that in the literary universe was all in spot's head <laughs> that's it that must be it absolutely <laughs> Well, we'll uh, we'll get back to the Aventine and the Enterprise because there's a little bit more that they encounter, but we'll kind of get back to that a little bit because that's getting more towards the end of the book. But let's uh, let's join the Titan in orbit of New Aragal, where, uh, unbeknownst to them, when they sent their away team down, they're fated to stay there forever now, like the Columbia was supposed to have. And uh, like the Columbia, will the Titan stay there forever? We don't know. We'll wait till we get to the end of the book. But their away team is on the surface. And uh, they've, of course, as we said, found the Kaliar. This planet is called New Aragal. And they learn that they're permanently trapped on the planet now. Erica Hernandez, in her new youthful version, tells them that they can't leave and that the Titan can't leave orbit. And they're stuck there. So this presents a number of problems because we've, of course, got uh, Deanna Troy with her medical condition and, you know, a big, huge meat-eating dinosaur doctor who uh, isn't really going to fit in well with the Kaliar's uh, vegan, uh, (laughs) peace-loving ways. All right. And, of course, a determined crew that, like the Columbia crew, really want to get back to their ship to join the fight against the Borg. They're, they're very motivated to not stay there. So um, what do you think here? We're, we're seeing kind of a repeat almost of what happened with Columbia, but now it's happening with Titan. Do you think, like, have the Kaliar learned? Or do, you, do they really think this is a good idea? Yeah, well, I think they do because they keep doing it. Yeah, I got no sense from them whatsoever that you know they're questioning what they're doing, or maybe they shouldn't be doing this, or whatever. I mean, they're just determined that they have to protect themselves, and no one needs to know anything about them. They don't want anybody come knocking at their door or investigating them, and anybody who does come, well, you're here to stay for the rest of your lives. We can't take any chances. We can't contaminate any timelines or anything like that, and. And you're here to stay. And so when this part of the book came up, I was thinking, yeah, this feels like what happened with the Columbia crew in book one. And now we're repeating it in book two. And the beauty of this book, and of course, we've read past these books already. But the first time you're reading this, if you if, before those other series came out, you could almost assume that, yeah, they could be trapped there forever because the future hadn't been written in this continuity yet. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it even more suspenseful. Yeah. And, but you also start to think, well, you know, Columbia couldn't do it, but this is the Titan. And we're talking Riker and Troy and 
Tuvok and all these people, they'll they'll figure something out, right? And then you have the whole Troy aspect, like you said, with her health, which I know we'll probably get into a little more later, but you know, that just adds more drama to the whole thing. Now the the Kiliar seem to have learned a little bit from their previous uh encounter with not not a Federation starship, but an Earth starship. They're maintaining continuous 24-hour or however many hours new Aragal has uh, watch on the crew. There's an invisible Kaliar trailing every single one of them to keep an eye on them. And they warn them, you know, if you try to charge your equipment, we'll just disintegrate it. You'll remember the Columbia crew slowly like solar charged their rifles and, and scanners and stuff. So they've learned a little bit. They're, they're definitely more wary this time around. Yeah. I mean, they learned that they can't trust as Mm -hmm. much as they thought they could, (laughs) but, but you know, the fact that they're keeping people there, they didn't learn that imprisonment is not the best, thing to do but for them i guess it is but you know inix who's a kaliar he seems to understand both sides of this he's kind of that middle ground yeah now inix is a really interesting character and we learn a lot about him in this book i think more than we did of course in the previous book and it did a lot to and i'm sure he'd find this phrasing insulting but that's the limits of our language this story does a lot to humanize him. Like he, he, I really kind of start to understand his psychology a bit. Uh, and Erica even says something similar to him. Like you seem more human or something like that. And he's like, Oh, that's not nice. (laughs) Well, yeah, because he's been spending a lot of time with her and her crew. And so he is becoming a little more humanized in this book, just like she becomes a little more Kaliar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's, okay, let's talk about Captain Hernandez then, because she is a really interesting character. And when this book starts, you start with her in the 24th century and you get the impression that she's completely on the side of the Kaliar. She's kind of been conditioned and there's no spark of rebellion left in her. And at this point in the novel, I'm kind of, I I actually thought of another character in Star Trek and that's Vina. And uh, you know how she's uh, kept in the cage, but she's, you know, Erica's not tortured in this like Vina is, but, you know, Vina's telling Pike, like, they don't mean to be evil, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she's kind of come around to them. I really felt like Erica was kind of that in that same boat as Vina in this. Did that kind of, does that strike a chord with you at all? It does now that you mention it. It didn't occur to me at the time, but it seems so obvious now to me. It's like it is very similar. And I'm not saying that David Mack said, oh, I'm going to take what they did in the cage and put it in here. It's it's that whole imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the illusions. And then she does come around to more of how just accepting her situation and working with the Kaliar. And so when the Titan crew does show up. It is like that Vena Pike thing of like, oh, well, just, you know, just let it go. I've, you know, just, just be here. It's just the way it is. And that's how Hernandez is. Like, you're not going to get out of here. I was just like you when I first got here, but it just, just accept it. You're, there's no way you're going to get out. You might as well just, just accept it and stay here. Now, the interesting thing though, and I, I love the way this book is structured because 
they you see this and you see this future version of her or the present version of her and then like every so often the chapters go back and you fill in a little bit more of the backstory and as it's doing that you realize that like that little spark of rebellion that that push against the Kaliar is still there inside her and she's just kind of biding her time so at first she's like okay i'm i'm going to wait until we're caught up to when Aragal explodes and the Columbia is destroyed. Then I'm going to make my move because then I can't screw up the timeline. I'm going to escape. I'm going to uh, signal Starfleet and, and, you know, let them know. But the Kaliar are kind of able to thwart her at every turn. And, but she continues this, like, uh, she very slowly, meticulously builds this piece of equipment that's going to help her. And, you know, just as she's finishing it, Inix walks up and disintegrates it. And it's like, you know, I wanted to see you're learning. You're doing really well, but we can't let you do that. And we learn that like a month before the Titan showed up, she was finishing her most recent plan that Inix thwarted. So it's really cool. You kind of learn as you're reading that like, oh my God, she's actually like not she's not bought into the Kaliar. She's just biding her time and she's um, trying to keep it on the DL right with the Titan crew and, and not let them know that she's actually trying to escape as well. Yeah. I mean, she never really did give up. I mean, she presents that in a way to the Titan crew because I think her thinking is if I don't have a solution, if I don't have a plan that I think that's going to work, then I need to spend the time to figure it out. And so when Titan shows up, she doesn't have a plan for them. And it's like, you know, yeah, I was like you too. I want to get off, but how are you going to do it? You don't have a plan. There's not a way out. So, you know, just, just accept it. But she's never really fully accepted it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's times that you think she does, like you said, but really in the back of her mind, I think she's always looking for that way out. And as time goes on, as she goes through a transformation that cements her even more that she has to stay because she knows if she does find a way to leave, she may age out and die. Yeah. So we didn't really talk a lot about what has physically happened to her. So yeah, she's been infused with these uh, nano particles. The, they're called catoms or katoms. I'm not sure but uh, they, you know, give her her youth and she's able to kind of manipulate matter and control her environment the same way that the Kaliar do. And yeah, she basically cheats death, but it further ties her to the city. So she can't leave or, you know, she, like you said, she'll age and die. Kind well, of just thing. like Vina. Exactly. I mean, yeah. You know, all of a sudden she's gotten her youth and she doesn't want to leave. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And the flashbacks we get are, are really tragic as well because the, her fellow prisoners slowly kind of one by one, we, we've got uh, Valerian, for example, who very early on started to kind of lose her mind and her grip on reality. And she kind of you know, goes insane and lives most of her time in a holographic simulation. And then we've got her caretaker, who's the ship's doctor, who commits suicide one yeah, day. Metzger. Yeah, Dr. Metzger. And 
that was just so tragic because um, that whole chapter, you can tell what she's building towards. And I don't know exactly where in the chapter you kind of realize, oh, I know what she's going to do, but it just becomes inevitable. And she, you know, commits suicide. And Valerian, of course, she's not right in the head, so she doesn't even understand what has happened and all this kind of stuff. So uh, it's really tragic. And yeah, uh, there's a bunch of other stuff that happens. That's, that's pretty horrifying. Yeah. I, I would say this is one part of the book that is my, probably one of my favorite parts of the book mm-hmm. is what happens with these characters because they are trapped in the city. It's, you know, been transported back to like the 1500s and, you know, they're not on earth. They can't do anything. They can't change anything. And yet they grow old together. They become a family. They're not a crew anymore. They're now family. There are these four women. It's the golden girls in space, (laughs) but it was very dramatic. You know, the fact that they're growing old together and they've become so tight knit, but like you're saying, there's insanity that starts to happen. And one jumps jumps off a spire off a building, you know, and, and goes to her death. And then the other one, they try to save with this technology that the Kaliar have, and it doesn't work. And then Valerian's just screaming as they're going through this process. And it's this earth chilling scream. And they're just watching her friends are just watching her die right then and there. And, um, you know, Fletcher and Hernandez live life together. They're able to go and, build a house, have a house built out into the countryside off of the city. And, and Fletcher's like, I don't want to try to do anything to prolong my life. And, you know, she even points to a site says, this is where I want you to bury me when I die. I mean, there was a lot of dramatic scenes when it came to their deaths. And then when it's Hernandez's turn and she's about to die and she's this old lady, she accepts an ex not right away, but she does accept his offer to try this one more time. He found the way to change this technology that it might work, that she should could gain her youth back. And it's not a, it's not like the fountain of youth necessarily. It's that, you know, our bodies all start to deteriorate and he found a way to reverse that where her body would never deteriorate. Mm -hmm. And, and this is where I was talking earlier. We get a little bit of an insight into Inix's psychology because he says to her, I will miss you. You know, I don't want you to die. Like, I don't want to be without you. Which and- is so weird because he, he honored Fletcher's request to allow herself to die. And Hernandez is, is the one saying, I don't want you to die, Fletcher. I don't want you to die. Don't you? He's like, let her die. Yeah, mm-hmm. when she's ready to die and she says, let me die, he says no. Well, he doesn't. I, I think if Hernandez had still said, absolutely not, I just want to die, I think he would have accepted it. But I think he was talking to her because he said she wasn't in like her right mind to know, to really make that decision. That Fletcher mm-hmm. made her decision to die before she became ill. And that's why he could honor Fletcher's decision because she was in the right mind and not on death's bed. Right. It was ahead of time. Now that Hernandez is in the place of dying, he's like, you're not in that place to make the decision like Fletcher was. Her mind was clear. Yours isn't. Hmm. I, I, I feel, I, I don't know. I could be wrong. I feel like he was trying to convince her 
Um, but I, I still feel like if she'd have said absolutely not, he would have honored that. And because she kind of does at the end go like, oh, fine. Okay. Whatever. Sure. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, okay, yay. Now I have consent. I can do this. So yeah. I, and that, I, that may be true that he would have eventually honored her, but he was really pressing Fletcher. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But he was uh, pressing Hernandez because he wasn't ready to accept her decision. He came to grips with Fletcher's decision ahead of time. Right. Because he, he had grown so close to her and like you said, would miss her. And it's interesting because that's not the way the other Kaliar seemed to operate. Like they, they don't have that kind of attachment that there's no relationship. To. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we never see any scenes where these humans are, interplaying with Kaliar for over these years and not playing like softball or anything, Mm -hmm. you know, but but even amongst the Kaliar, like millions of them die and they seem like distraught by it a little bit, but there's not that emotional, like, I can't believe this tragedy happened. Oh my God, we've lost all these people. They're, they're very stoic and they just kind of accept it. And we don't really see them together. We don't really see much of the Kaliar as a society. Mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you what the day in the life of a Kaliar is. No, not really. Other than like the little bits we do see, like where they're just working at their consoles and being disdainful of the humans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are they having children? Do the children go to school? Do people get married? You know, I have no idea about their society. Not that it's important to the story, but it really, mm-hmm. the center is on our characters, our human characters from the Columbia, but we really don't know the society of the Kaliar that well. Yeah, that would be something I'd be interested in learning more about for sure. So meanwhile, the Federation, of course, dealing with this Borg invasion and the uh, the possible you know loss of billions of lives and this sort of thing president Baco, of course has this huge problem on her hands so she's kind of called together all the ambassadors of the major powers and i i love politics in star trek so i loved all of this i thought this was great and she kind of takes a vote like who is going to stand with the federation and send ships to join this task force that will hold off the borg in the azure nebula and she gets uh, the support of the Klingon Empire and the breakaway Romulan Republic and eventually the Ferengi <laughs> after she kind yeah. of twists his arm a bit. But like the Gorn, the Tholians, the, the Breen and the Romulan Empire, they're all kind of uh, not really uh, pledging to support her. So she does this thing where she kind of locks them all in a room and you know, manages to, you know, convince the, the Ferengi to use the Breen as mercenaries. So taking away their fleet so that they can't help the Tholians and the Tholian, you know, it's all this like political maneuvering that I thought was a lot of fun. Uh, and the fact that I absolutely love President Baco meant that I loved this part of the book. Yeah, same here. Every time we have Baco in a book, I always enjoy the scenes that she's in and, and yeah, the West Wing type feel. Uh, the Articles of Federation. And I was also thinking, is this the first novel that we, where we have Baca written by another author besides Keith R.A. DeCandido? 
I think this might be the first. I think in Before Dishonor, maybe she was referred to, or maybe mm. there's a brief scene, but I think this is the most at this point that we had a different author writing her in scenes to this extent. I think you might be right. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. I, I think you're right there. Yeah. I mean, maybe there was something in even greater than the sun, but I think they were brief, if anything. Mm-hmm. If we're missing anything major, someone will definitely let us know. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it, just how she handles these different species, you know, the Ferengi and the Cardassians and every, you know, she just like those who say no to this coalition is she knows how to play them, you know? <laughs> And it's, she's the type of person that would just get in your face and say, I'm not going to accept no for an answer. You have to give me something better than a no. You got to explain yourself better. And even when you explain it, I don't know if I'm going to accept that. And I'll show you why you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the ambassador for the Cardassians at this time is Garrick. And he votes no. He's not going to commit uh, Cardassian forces but Baco kind of gets him in a room and says, like, okay, what do you want? Like, you know, what what can we do? And he's like, well, we have problems of our own. We have, you know, refugees and all this kind of stuff. And Baco's like, okay, what if I give you these three planets? And he's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, she's willing to, you know, she sees the writing on the wall and realizes this is a moment in Federation history that, you know, things can turn on what happens here. So she's willing to make big sacrifices to put the Federation in the best position to weather this crisis. So like she's willing to really go to great lengths to protect the Federation, except those three planets. They're not in the Federation anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Right. Exactly. And I really enjoy the scene towards the end where there's a lot of destruction and, and the Borg are coming and her just being in her office at the window and thinking through how life of the Federation may end under her watch. Mm-hmm. And just the weight of that on her. I and just I, love that scene. Absolutely. And, and the way it was described, I could be wrong, but it really feels like they're doing that iconic JFK pose, right? Where he's got his hands on his desk and his shoulders yes. kind of slumped. The, the pose we actually that way. Yeah. yeah. Th- and it's the pose we actually also see on the cover of articles of the Federation, right? Like it, yep. it's such an iconic moment from JFK's presidency that has been, you know, copied many times since. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's replayed perfectly here in, uh, in book form. <laughs> when you picture her in her office, do you envision the president's office from the undiscovered country? Cause I do. I, the redress I do too. of the 10 forward set. Yeah, the 10 <laughs> forward redress with the, yeah. the obviously Enterprise D windows behind her, but like with curtains over them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, partially because I just recently watched that just a couple of weeks ago. But yeah, it's it's pretty fresh in my head. And that's that's how I tend to picture her office. I always thought that little tiny room that they had in Deep Space Nine for the president's office, I'm always like, that's not his main office. That's just a little one off to the side or something. Yeah, that that that's its Camp David or something. You know, yeah. A little remote area or something like that. <laughs> I always picture the office from the undiscovered country, and then I always picture out the window, you can see the uh, Eiffel Tower. Right. Definitely, yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit about what's kind of going on on Titan. And this is another one of those smaller kind of psychological stories that's interspersed in with the larger narrative. And I actually really thought this story was fascinating. So Melora Pazlar, who we know from Deep Space Nine, is an Alasian who has uh, very brittle bones and is very weak because she grew up in much lighter gravity than what we're used to. She spends all of her time in this holographic environment that Zara Havre, the Titan's engineer, has designed for her that allows her to kind of move around the ship as a holographic avatar. However, Counselor Huelan, one of the counselors on Titan, has kind of pointed out to her that uh, Melora has not left stellar cartography in some time. And there's this great scene, I absolutely love it, where the counselor goes to Pazlar's quarters and, you know, just kind of walks in with it. She's like, you just came in without knocking. And he's like, are you sure you've got this all under control? You haven't been spending too much time in the holographic environment. She's like, no, I've totally got it under control. He's like, Hmm, interesting. Uh, end program. And her quarters disappears, the quarters that she went to, to go to bed. And she's actually still in stellar cartography and hadn't realized it. I love that scene. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. And this isn't a big part of the book, but I, I love these scenes. And that's why I put it in the notes because it just really stood out to me. It's something I remembered after I finished reading the book. And I like the idea that she's able to walk around the ship without her exoskeleton and use this technology, but she is becoming addicted to it. She can't mm-hmm. just always be in stellar cartography and it also made me wonder, does anybody else ever have to use it? You know, I mean, <laughs> she's practically made her home. Like anybody walks in there, it's like, oh, gosh, Pazler's in stellar cartography again. I can never use it. Can we have like a reservation system, people? Come on. She's always in there. <laughs> yeah, there are a few scenes where like there there's people doing work with her in there. Yeah. But yeah, we don't get that scene where somebody just goes to stellar cartography and like walks in and it's Pazler's quarters and she's sleeping on the bed and he's going like, what is going on here? <laughs> right, right. She's got the biggest quarters in the whole ship. <laughs> and the whole relationship that she has with Ra Havre is interesting because he does create this technology for her and it's like, well, yeah, he's an engineer and he sees that she has this issue and he's about fixing things. But, uh, the, you know, this counselor then starts to realize from a psychological like point, well, why, why would you do this? Why would you spend all this time for her? And didn't you think, I don't know about you, but I thought, okay, is they leaning towards that? Oh, he has a thing for her. They're in love or he's in love with her or something, but it's not about that. It's that Raha Ray likes his privacy. He likes to distance himself from people. And he's almost projecting himself onto Pazlar of like, oh, what an opportunity that you could be remote and never really truly be around people, that you're Mm -hmm. protected behind something. Yeah, and I I love this kind of psychological stuff. Uh, And and again, like we said with book one, it's these, you know, neither of them are humans, but it's this human moment that you kind of figure out what the motivation behind their actions are. And just another thing that you realize that we're fighting for just these regular lives of these people 
that have to live and work together. And I, I just, I love that stuff. And I think that was a really interesting exploration of that. Yeah. And when all this other dramatic stuff is happening, it's not as if these are comedic scenes or, but it's, it's more like you're saying like a day in the life of the ship and how these characters are relating and, huh? Yeah. I never really noticed about myself. Yeah. Why did I do that? Or, Oh yeah, you're right. I should get out of stellar cartography. Huh? I didn't think about that. It just shows how they all support one another. Mm -hmm. And like the, the smaller stuff like that is important, you know, like it's, it's the reason why there's a debate over Riker's career choices in the best of both worlds when the Federation is facing this Borg menace, you know, like, yeah, there's the big situation that's going on and, and that deserves attention, but this is story, still a story about people and we can't lose sight of that. Right. Like I, I love that there's still time to explore that here, even though these huge events are happening. What if Paslar got hold of the mobile emitter like the doctor had? She would never leave stellar cartography because <laughs> she could go anywhere. Oh, yeah. There you go. She could even go on away missions from stellar cartography. Yep. She'd be in that room for the rest of her life without any muscle strength. Brilliant. <laughs> she would love it. <laughs> Well, we're coming now kind of towards the end of the novel and on New Aragal, we've got the Titan away team that's trapped there. Uh, Deanna Troy, of course, is having this uh, troubled pregnancy. She has this um, fetus that's not developing properly. Dr. Ree has given her this kind of inhibitor that's designed to slow the pregnancy, um, kind of almost keep it in stasis until they can figure out something better to do. But that inhibitor has failed and the fetus is threatening to rupture her uterine wall. There's this scene where this fever has kind of put her in a delirium and she's, you know, screaming for Dr. Ree to get away from her and all this kind of stuff. And there's security officers kind of witnessing this and like they're, they're very wary of the doctor because Deanna is saying these things. And Dr. Ree runs up to her and bites her on the abdomen while the security officers are trying to restrain him. How weird was that? <laughs> yeah. Now, I've since read, of course, all of the books in this series, so I know what's going on. But I, I, I was kind of putting myself back there when I was reading this for the first time. And I do remember thinking like, oh, my God the doctor has lost it. There's something else going on here. I can't believe he's attacking her. Do you remember what you first thought when you first read this? Yeah, absolutely. I felt that same. I had that same thought. Yes, that's mm -hmm. exactly. I remember thinking at that time, it was like, wow, uh, he's so determined because he's getting pretty pissed off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> They're all like pushing him away. Leave her alone. He's like, no, she's going to die. And it's like, okay, what better way to resolve this is to just bite it out of her. <laughs> you know? I mean, just, you know, let's just get this over with. And just like, whoa, like, I mean, I didn't think he was killing Deanna, but mm -hmm. he was severely injuring her and just, you know, going to eat the baby out of her stomach or like ugh. that that's where my mind first went to i think and like that's crazy but that's kind of where my mind went and uh that's kind of the cliffhanger for for that part of the story that we get at the end of this book so we'll we'll kind of pick that up in book three but that's where that part of the story is left 
Meanwhile, in orbit, uh, the Titan is in orbit and all of a sudden Erica Hernandez appears on the bridge of the Titan while they're kind of exploring, uh, tapping into the Kaliar's subspace tunnels to kind of get information and see what's going on back in the Azure Nebula and, and all that sort of stuff. So Hernandez appears there and tells Riker that they have one chance to escape, but he has to decide now. And Riker's looking through this subspace tunnel and he sees the destruction of the fleet by the Borg, which we're going to talk about in, this, in a second because there's big things happening there. And Riker wants to get back there and join the fight. So he has to leave the away team behind, keeping in mind that this away team includes his horribly ill wife that he's going to potentially leave behind here. And Hernandez says, it's now or never. You have to decide. We can go, but we have to go now. And he ultimately decides, yes, let's do it. Let's go. What did you think of that? Well, what I thought was, first of all, I was like, wait, I'm confused. How did Hernandez get to the bridge? So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the thought that him leaving Deanna behind didn't really surprise me. That mm-hmm. It wasn't like, you know... Because I feel like, you know, if he has to leave and go do something, he'll come back for, you know? Yeah. And and Hernandez kind of says that to him, like, you can come back for her, but you have to decide now. Yeah. And it kind of reminded me in a strange kind of way, the end of The Best of Both Worlds Part 1. Hmm. It's like that cliffhanger of, like, Riker's about to make a decision. What's it going to be? Is he going? Is he going? Is he going? Yes, he's going to go. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. And I hadn't thought of that in that um, context that is definitely in character for Riker. Like he is capable of making the big decision. Right. That Which is why he's allowed to sit in that chair. Like that's what Shelby said to him in, in Best of Both Worlds. If you can't make, if you can't make the big decisions, I suggest you make room for someone who can. And Riker found out in that episode, he can make the big decisions. And he does it again here. Absolutely. I'm sorry, not to change subjects, but where is Shelby? <laughs> she was mentioned, I think, in book one. Was she? I, I, I can't remember now. I know there has been some references to New Frontier. Oh, yes. I think she's an admiral at she's this time, admiral. right? She's an admiral. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, at Bravo yeah. Station. Yeah. Either it was earlier in this book or book one, but I do remember there was a brief scene with her. Hmm, and that's the beauty of this trilogy is it touches on so many different series, not just the TV series, but book series too. Cause we do get some Voyager. We get more, a little more Voyager in this book. We have captain Chakotay of the Voyager and his first officer, Tom Paris. They're involved in the fight. So yeah, we, we touch on all of them except mm-hmm. for TOS and discovery, of course, because discovery didn't exist at the time. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, so back at the Azure Nebula, so the Enterprise and the Aventine, I want to talk a little bit about one of the other jaunts that they make through one of the subspace tunnels, and they end up uh, kind of, I think, on the edge of the Delta Quadrant somewhere, yes. and they, you know, there's this um, black hole with this plasma streamer, and they get heavily damaged coming through. So they have to sit there and make repairs, but they detect that a Herogen hunting party is on the way. And oh man, 
this was cool. The Herogen <laughs> invading um, the Enterprise and the Avatine and like crawling on the outside of the hull and, you know, blowing up parts of the ship. And oh, man, this like this is like if the Herogen really were the way they were supposed to be shown in Voyager and it was HBO. So they had no like qualms about, you know, really going there with violence and all that stuff because the Herogen were supposed to be really scary and they come across as really scary here. Yeah. I would say this is again, one of my more favorite parts of the book. Also it's the most violent of star Trek that I've pretty much have ever seen or read. I mean, this would put this novel, if it was a movie into the rated R category, or like you're saying, you know, HBO, this is a game of Thrones level of violence and, and there's just a lot of fighting going on and, and Worf and his bathlet and stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it was kind of crazy. It's like, I'm picturing these Starfleet crew members fighting like I've never seen them before. Like it's almost out of character. Yeah, you know, because what we see on this series and stuff, you know, they're shooting phasers or, you know, cry chopping necks or shoulders. Or yeah. Whatever. And this was like flat out like swords and weapons. <laughs> and I mean, this was a war novel when we got to this point. Yeah. Like at the start when they realized they're probably going to be boarded you know, Picard gives the order, like, distribute TR-116 distribute TR rifles. They, those are the ones that shoot bullets and bladed weapons to the security teams. And you're like, dang, this is getting crazy. Yeah. No, and, and it's, yeah, so with all that violence going on, it was just it was just so crazy. And then it going into the next stuff right after this, it was just, like, heads exploding with all this stuff that's happening. Yeah. So all of this is kind of happening at the same time here. So they, they do manage to get back through the, the subspace tunnel because, you know, they, they fight off the Herogen, but they detect that all of the subspace tunnels are about to collapse. Like basically the Kaliar have figured out someone's using our subspace tunnels. We better close them. So they're closing them. The enterprise and the Aventine have to go through the plasma streamer back into the aperture and manage to do that without getting uh, destroyed. And they figure out a way to do that. And they get through the tunnel just as it's collapsing. But when they get back to the Azure Nebula, they discover a graveyard of ships. This entire fleet that was made up of Federation ships and Klingon ships and Romulan ships and Cardassian ships and Ferengi ships and all of these allied forces that had gathered there to kind of hold the line against the Borg are smashed and destroyed. And they get a message from one ship that's, you know, been its warp engines been knocked off and it's smashed and it's Voyager and Captain Chakotay tells them what has happened. And that's that these Borg ships all came through the subspace tunnel and there's over 7,400 Borg ships have entered the Federation space and they're spreading out over Federation space and Klingon space. And there's basically enough for like one ship per planet in this whole region to wipe everything out. And it's just like a, 
I, I said it already in this podcast, but it's like a dang moment. Yeah. <laughs> Because like I just was saying about the Herosian, we come off of all of that, all that fighting that's going on and all the violence, and it's very intense. And then boom, into this of all those destroyed ships, and you're told there's 7,400 Borg ships that have been, like, you're just like, there's no way out of this. Like, this is just like overdrive. I mean, no wonder David Mack has this reputation of like, oh, he's just out to kill characters and books all the time because there's just <laughs> extreme violence and and fighting going on in this. Yeah, and I love the fact that they, that they used Voyager and Captain Chakotay for this part, mm-hmm. where, you know, to be the ship that says, you know, we've been attacked. The Borg are here. You know, it was just it was so great. And one of the things that we didn't mention that just reminded me of is Seven of Nine has a small part of this book and she's helping the Federation. And I just love every time that she's, so every time she's like with these Federation advisors or they're trying to come up with strategic plans and they're like, well, we'll just wait for the Borg to come through. No, you need to go to the Borg. You need to go and destroy them. Go to them. You got, and you know, or you will be destroyed. And just like every time they say like, well, maybe we should do this. No, you should just go all out or you will die. (laughs) Yeah. And and at one point she's even like, no, you need to abandon your worlds and pick one of these subspace tunnels and go through it and leave this area of space. Like, yeah, that was a moment that like, wow. <laughs> she very much is trying to get the message across that this is worse than you think. You got to go to the extreme because if you hesitate, if you decide to back up on anything or take an easy way out, you're going to die. You're over. Yeah. So oh. that was cool too. But yeah, there's so much, you know, we talk about, oh, we have all these Borg novels and I'm kind of getting tired of the Borg. This is a point where I'm like, okay, I'm all hands on Borg right now. This is like, I'm all into this. <laughs> Definitely. I, I couldn't put that better myself. I'm absolutely on board with this story and just blown away by what's happening. And, and like, even the moments like the, when Chakotay's talking about the Borg ships coming through and the fact that, you know, the fleets opening up on them and trying to stop them, but the Borg didn't even fire. Like they just flew through the fleet and smashed the ships. Like they didn't even bother to shoot a weapon. Like they just rammed the entire fleet. Yeah. Just crashed right through them. Jaw dropping. Oh. Yeah, and you just gotta think there's no there can't be any way out. There's no way. There's no yeah. way. And you end the book this way, right? You know? <laughs> You're just like, where's this gonna go? And what does this have to do with the Kaliar? Like really when you're reading this book, it's almost like the Borg stuff is behind the scenes. It's almost like the B storyline. The Kaliar seems to be more of the A storyline. And it's like, well, what does what does one have to do with the other? I mean, you can make assumptions and you know if you haven't read book three, I'm not giving anything away, but my, you know, at this point, the first time I read, I was like, it's gotta be something where like the Kaliar will have their special powers and, and they do something to help the Federation, you know, conquer the Borg or, or something, mm-hmm. but it gets crazier than yeah. that. It's it, not, yeah, it's not that simple. <laughs> definitely not. And it never is with David Mack. Take a drink. <laughs> definitely. So, and that that's where we leave the book. Like you said, that's the end. So 
I, I can't remember if I read these books like when right when they first came out, if I had to wait two months for the next book. But, uh, you know, because this one came in September and then the, the last book came out in November of that year. So, man, if I if I had to wait, I don't know what I'd do, because basically I put this book down this time around and picked up book three and started on it within moments because there's there's no way I'm going to wait. I've even read the story before and I can't wait to read the rest of it. I almost did the same thing. I was, uh, I finished book two, but I didn't have time to jump to book three, but I thought, you know, later tonight I'm going to do that. And I was traveling and I was too tired. I was like, you know what? I'll do it on the plane tomorrow morning. And the next morning I was still so tired. I got on the plane, fell asleep. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, you know what we're recording. And that was, that was this morning. And I was like, you know, we're recording tonight. I shouldn't start book three now at this point anyway. I was so close to recording because I don't want to like jump ahead and go, oh crap, wait, that's the wrong book. <laughs> I had to be very careful. I had notes with like certain points with lines through them so that I like, no, okay, nope, that happens in book three. I can't talk about that yet. And this is where the book ends. Okay, okay. So I had yeah. to definitely keep that straight. <laughs> yeah. And the first time I read these, I, I mean, I don't remember if I read them as soon as they were coming out. I think... I did. I think I did. If I didn't read them when each book came out and I had to wait till the next one, I must've read them like really like shortly after that or something. But I really think I did read them as they came out. Yeah. Oh man. (laughs) It'd be a long two months. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, I guess, uh, do you have any final thoughts for book two? I don't know if we want to give it a rating. I mean, I'm kind of thinking of rating the whole thing. Uh, and I guess the author will be here. So we don't usually do ratings when the author is here. So I don't know. It's, it's five stars. It's amazing. It's the best Star Trek. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I know what gave else to my say. rating on the last show. Cause I gave book one a five star. Cause I said, you know what? I'm just giving the whole trilogy five stars. So each book gets five stars. So everybody knows now uh, book three gets five. So, and I haven't even re- reread it yet. And it's, <laughs> that's kind I'm of where i'm at now too yeah yeah it's all five and it's not stars it's you know five thousand no it's seven thousand four hundred out of seven thousand four hundred borg oh that's a that's an apocalyptic rating <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing i do want to mention real quick too there's a, um some good scenes with dax uh with wharf mm, uh, yeah yeah the fact that she's now a captain and she's leapfrogged him and and she talks to him about like i don't know if you have a problem with it and he he doesn't you know he's he's good with it and he you know of course his relationship with jadzia and he thinks of you know he has a special place for dax in his heart and then there's another scene with uh dax and bowers her first officer where she's and i I love this part because i was talking earlier about how she seems very confident as a captain but we get this scene with bowers where she's questioning that you know is she really a good captain is she, is she ready for this and he's like well heck yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you know there's just other you know little scenes there's so many of these little character scenes throughout all this this mess of action and story and all this there's there's all these little moments so that that i really like yeah i'm a big fan of that as well i think like when we talked about Pazlar and Rahavre and that bit with Worf and Dax, absolutely. Like, I love 
visiting these characters and getting those small moments. But then, you know, pairing it with these huge, explosive, amazing set pieces that just dominate this story. Um, there's, there's, it's, it's such an amazing balance of these huge galaxy shattering events and these small human stories, um, like the Columbia crew in, um, Axion, what they're dealing with and growing old and dying. All of this stuff is excellent. So it's not even that the really amazing, big, huge galactic happenings are pulling up the rest of the book. The whole book is great. All of these things come together to make a really amazing story. And, uh, yeah, it's fives all the way down for me as well. But, but that being said, as much as we like these books, this is a big, epic crossover series of stuff, you know? And, but I wouldn't want this of every Star Trek novel. Definitely. I, I, th- yeah. I think it succeeds so well because it's an exception. Like it's exceptional right. because it's not the norm for sure. I would like something like this maybe once every five years. Yeah. Published. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. At the very most. Or at, at, at maybe 10, but mm-hmm. no, I, I wouldn't want it to wait any longer than 10. <laughs> yeah. Because I, Uh, And I mean, I know I just keep harping on this novel, but like, I think this idea done badly is when you get something like Before Dishonor, where it's just like, oh boy, the big, huge threat is coming. Oh God, what shall we do? Let's crack some jokes about it. You know what I mean? Like, this feels like it's given the weight that it deserves and it's, you know, epic enough to, to suit the story. Whereas if... It's like, oh no, the earth is threatened. Oh gosh. Like every other week, then it really gets watered down. And to me, this feels that David Mack loves Star Trek. Definitely. And take a drink. I really don't have anything more to say, Dan. All has been said. I'm looking forward to the next episode when we have the master I mean, wait, we're giving so much praise. If he's listening to this, he's probably like, okay, come on, guys. You're going a little overboard. We are such geeky fans right now, right? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, we're we're totally fanboying and fangirling all over this thing, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, again, you know, people ask me what my favorite Star Trek novels are, and this is the series, this trilogy is definitely on that list. For sure. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say besides that. So it's been fun being left speechless by this novel today, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing or being rendered speechless about on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. I bought it when it first came out. I played it for like two or three days. And I went, what is going on? Am I, am I missing something? Is is just I'm not a good player. So, and then I checked on the reviews online, and everyone agreed that it was not a good game, and we were all correct. Literary treks. But that's why I bring this back around. Why it was so cool the Klingon battle cruisers to distinguish them not being the smooth-sided, cheapy little things from the series. 
Gene gives him this, you know, never is this uttered on screen, but every little tech nerd <laughs> knows what a Katinga, you know, Klingon battlecruiser is. And it's only because he came up with that, Gene came up with that word and gave it to them in the novel. It's not in the movie. You know, nobody mm-hmm. says, Captain, we were right. picking up uh, three Klingon Tekinga heavy battlecruisers on the, you know, Epsilon 9. Earl Grey. Come on. Like, when you know. go on a date, no. you're going out to dinner and you're, that's like the standard date number one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe like, things are different in the 24th maybe. century. Maybe. <laughs> but okay, all right. I mean, I, I, I but okay. So, 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 I mean, you could be assuming this is the first time they shared breakfast together. <laughs> And introducing our newest show, The Line, a Star Trek Picard podcast. Mike, I wanted to make a comment about something that you said about uh, being mostly the middle for a lot of these comic book franchises. It actually makes me think Star Trek, in a way, is something that keeps going and going 764 installments now oh. without a specific end necessarily maybe it'll come what, someday what but these are the voyages was a was a love letter to the fans what are you talking about justin you know what i mean and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, and most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the rss link if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week you can become a patron of the network on patreon just visit patreon.com slash trek fm and that's spelled p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek fm to get all of the details perks can include early access to episodes exclusive content producer credits a one-way trip to the azure nebula and more available through our special patrons website patron zone warning we cannot be held responsible for any board ships you find in the azure nebula it requires a great deal of money to produce host and distribute these shows each month we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team again you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek fm we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show And there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babo Conference. The Babo Conference. Our listeners group on Facebook. Yeah. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and it will come right to us. And you can find the network on Twitter at TrekFN and on Facebook at facebook.com slash, you guessed it, TrekFM.
You can also find us on our Goodreads group. Now, Goodreads.com doesn't have a cool, catchy jingle like the Babel Conference, but what it does have is bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are message boards with great conversations happening about all the books and comics. If there's not a discussion happening about the book that you want to talk about there, just create one. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Grozier, Brandon Shamutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not practicing an odd form of medicine by biting your patients on the abdomen, where can we find you? I hate you, Dan Gunther. You took mine. Oh, no. I was going to say sorry. that. I was I like, just, he's not going to. I just thought of I it. thought there's so much in this book that oh. we're not going to duplicate. And we still did. We always do this. But Sorry. anyway, um, when I'm not taking a bite out of Troy, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. You can find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jacola, where we do a live show about Star Trek Discovery the night after a Discovery episode premieres and you can find me doing the star wars report podcast with riley blanton and we've got a lot going on in the coming month with the premiere of the rise of skywalker and of course the mandalorian on disney plus we're covering that as well and of course you can always find me in the babel conference so dan when you're not taking a bite out of troy and you're keeping yourself in your stellar cartography room and projecting yourself into other people's rooms and pretending that you might want to bite them, but it's only because that you just feel very secure in your own space and don't want to do it personally and just do it holographically. <laughs> what, what, what cabin on the ship could people find you at? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm really busy in that one. <laughs> Well, you can find me uh, when I'm not doing that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. We may not want to find you. Yeah, maybe not. Um, but if you if you really do, uh, I also have a YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Productions where I do uh, videos mostly on Star Trek, but... I am planning on doing reviews of The Mandalorian as well. And actually, by the time this episode comes out, if all's according to plan, I'll have done a couple of them already. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to try my hand at this whole Star Wars thing. Please don't hate me. Uh, and you can also find me, of course, on Facebook.com slash Productions. I'm Kurtrats47 on Instagram if you want to check out my pictures i guess i don't know i'm all over the place you can find me can i add one thing real quick um I, and you can also find me on some episodes recently here of the six of two club covering some star wars things too of oh, some new publications cool. and the movies and stuff well in that case you can also find me on treklit.com <laughs> that's true yes i i you can, i can probably also send smoke signals and semaphore flags and i mean there's just so many ways to keep in contact nowadays i don't remember my old icq number but i might be able to remember that if i try we can wait go ahead try think yeah, yeah. well thank you all so much for listening and until next time live long and read on what do you call that light reading to each his own number one